In today's episode, you will be guided through the different landmarks and structures that we find on the upper limb skeleton. So you can size up these bones quickly and know why all these different landmarks exist, like which muscles attach to these different landmarks, for example. And you can go forth from this episode with renewed confidence about this content area, uh, an area which honestly could be kind of challenging. So love for you to join me in this episode today. Hey there, this is Seth Jump, your professor for Anatomy on the Go. I'm here to help you learn, practice, and review Anatomy on the Go wherever on the go is. Remember, if you haven't already, grab my free ebook, Preparing to Ace Anatomy. It's on my website, anatomyonthego.com. You can't miss it, just hit subscribe. And of course, when you do that, I'll send you the ebook and I'll also send you content around the podcast that reinforces the podcast and helps you out as much as possible. Whenever you receive anything from me, If you think of anything else you might need, feel free to reply to any email and just let me know what that resource might be for you. Also, you can leave a voicemail directly on my website to ask a question and or suggest a topic for the podcast. Before we head into the content for today's episode, a quick word about the featured resource. When you're learning anatomy, it can seem like a ton of information, like you're being pummeled with terms from every direction. To help you get a good grasp on all these foundational terms, the resource is Preparing to Ace Anatomy Terms. It's an audiobook, and in less than an hour, you can get a solid understanding of the most important terms you need for crushing your anatomy learning. This is the first of a few that will hit the presses, so to speak, and the first one is designed to get you straight to the point, not a whole lot of fluff. At the end of the book, you can practice all the new knowledge with with a guided Q&A. I'd encourage you to check it out. Go to your favorite audiobook platform, including Audible, Amazon, and all the rest. Or you can always go to the resources page on my website for this and any other new resource I create for you. So, back to the content for today's episode. Okay, so here we go. We are going into the details for the upper limb bones. So I'm building on the content that you learned in episode three, where I talked about the basics of the skeletal system. And so just a brief recap here. In that episode, I talked about how we have an axial skeleton and we have an appendicular skeleton. The axial skeletons, the the skeletal structures in the central part of the body, so skull, hyoid bone, ribs, sternum, vertebral column, make up the central part of our body, protect our, the, the organs like the brain, the heart, the lungs, etc., and also provide almost like an anchor point for the appendicular skeleton. So then the appendicular skeleton consists of upper limb and lower limb. The upper limb consists of the bones, clavicle, scapula, uh, humerus, radius ulna, and then hand. And then the lower limb consists of the pelvis, the femur, the tibia, the fibula, and then the foot. And so what we'll do today is we'll talk about the details of the upper limb skeleton. So you may recall from episode three and also the previous episode, I recommend using one big hint or clue to quickly size up a bone. So there's certain landmarks that you'll see only on the posterior or anterior side of a bone, certain landmarks that are medial versus lateral, certain landmarks that are proximal versus distal. And there are also reasons these landmarks exist, like they provide a muscle attachment site, 
the attachment site for a ligament, for example. And so you want to go forward with, uh, basically asking these questions. And so the big hint or clue could be different for you compared with me. For example, I uh, for the scapula, I, I quickly size up the scapula by finding the spine of the scapula as a posterior landmark, and then also as a lateral landmark, the glenoid fossa. So it might be different for you, but what you want to ask is, what structures are anterior and posterior, what structures are medial versus lateral, and what structures are proximal versus distal, and then why are they there? And before we get too much further along, remember that anterior is toward the front, posterior is toward the back, medial is toward midline, lateral is away from midline, proximal is closer to a point of attachment or origin, uh, distal is farther from that point of attachment or origin. And so these will kind of come together as we talk about it. For example, the upper limb, the proximal part of the upper limb is the pectoral girdle, the scapula and clavicle, where the upper limb anchors to the axial skeleton, and then distal is uh, the wrist and hand. So, and uh, this will all make sense as we go through this, but we're going to start uh, from the most proximal part of the upper limb, we're going to work our way through. Uh, I'll size these bones up with you, and then we'll provide a, a, a kind of an overview of all these different landmarks for every single bone, why they're there, and then I think at the end you'll feel pretty confident about uh, quickly sizing up these bones and even answering questions about these different bony landmarks. So let's first start with the scapula and the clavicle, which is, these two bones are also known as the pectoral girdle, and they help anchor the entire upper limb to the axial skeleton. So remember that the scapula is commonly known as the shoulder blade, and you can feel this on yourself. You can actually feel the spine of the scapula, uh, a horizontally coursing structure on the posterior side of your scapula. Uh, scapulae. You can, you can retract your scapulae right now. You use your rhomboid major, rhomboid minor, pull your, your shoulder blades, your scapulae backward uh, toward midline as well. And so these, this is posterior. This is the posterior part of the pectoral girdle. And this, then the clavicle, the collarbone, is the anterior part of the pectoral girdle. And we'll get to that here in a second. But what I'd like to do and what I'd recommend is, is first just make sure you know posterior. And to find posterior, you're going to locate the spine of the scapula, this horizontally coursing structure on the scapula. And then to find lateral, you're going to locate the glenoid fossa. This is the socket for the ball and socket joint, joint, the shoulder joint. And so this is a structure that's always going to be facing lateral, right? And then the head of the humerus is a, always a medially facing structure because it has to link up with this socket here. And then to find the anterior part of the scapula, you're going to locate the coracoid process. And so you can actually feel this on yourself. If you go a little bit medial to your shoulder joint, um, you're going to find this kind of crow's beak feeling structure. And you can actually feel the attachment of the biceps brachii to the coracoid process. So if somebody put a bone model of the scapula right in front of you right now, I'd recommend that you just immediately find the spine on the posterior part of the scapula and you find the glenoid fossa. That tells you posterior and lateral right away. Then the borders that we find on the scapula just kind of fall right in line, right? So the lateral border would be on the same side as the glenoid fossa. The medial border would be on the opposite side toward midline. Uh, compared with the glenoid fossa. And then we have different structures that attach to these borders as well. And then the superior angle and inferior angle are pretty straightforward, right? You want to make sure superior, uh, the superior angle is on the same, uh, closer to the spine compared with the inferior angle, which is opposite, uh, inferior to the spine as well. 
So if the coracoid process is facing you and the glenoid cavity is on the right, think about it. You have left scapula. And then if the coracoid process is facing you and the glenoid cavity is on the left, you have right scapula. So that's a way you can kind of work with anterior as well. Remember, a coracoid process is an anterior landmark. So we have all these different landmarks of the scapula, and I'm going to go through these and describe these and help you identify them on yourself. And feel free to uh, excuse me, refer to the show notes on my website, and then I'll also send you some additional things if you're a subscriber to help you out as well. But we have the acromion, which is uh, lateral to the uh, kind of the lateral extension of the spine of the scapula. And this is going to provide a, a, an attachment for the coracoacromial ligament. So that ligament's nice because it's just telling you it's attaching to the coracoid process and the acromion of the scapula. And so you can feel this as kind of the lateral raised portion of your shoulder blade. It's also an articulation point for the clavicle. So the acromial end of the clavicle actually anchors at this point as well and forms a strong, a relatively strong connection there. And then we have the aforementioned coracoid process, a good anterior landmark. The short head of the biceps brachii attaches there, as well as a muscle called the pectoralis minor muscle, which is a muscle underneath, uh, deep to the, the pectoralis major. Glenoid fossa, that's that perfect lateral landmark. And so this is actually where the head of the humerus anchors or, or blends to form the joint, the shoulder joint. This is the glenoid fossa is the socket, and then the ball of the ball and socket joint is the head of the humerus. So remember, glenoid fossa, always lateral. Head of the humerus, always medial. Then we have these structures called supraglenoid tubercle and infraglenoid tubercle. So you're taking a look at the glenoid fossa. That's facing you, so you know you're looking at the lateral aspect of the scapula. Then we have a rounded, small, roughened portion that's immediately superior to and immediately inferior to the glenoid fossa. The supraglenoid tubercle is immediately superior to the glenoid fossa. This provides an attachment for the long head of the biceps brachii, so the other head. Remember, biceps brachii has two distinct heads. We already talked about how the short head attaches to the coracoid process. Now, the long head of the biceps brachii attaches to the supraglenoid tubercle. We also have an infraglenoid tubercle, which is immediately inferior to the glenoid fossa, and that's going to provide an attachment for the long head of the triceps brachii. Triceps brachii actually has three distinct heads. One of them attaches here. All right, let's go back to the posterior side now. And so we, we find the spine itself. The spine itself, the spine of the scapula, is going to provide an attachment site for the trapezius muscle. This is the muscle that helps you elevate your scapulae uh, in addition to other things as well. Then we have some structures that are just simply named for their relationship to the spine. So we have a supraspinous fossa located superior to the spine. And so there, we actually have a muscle that's simply just named for its attachment to the supraspinous fossa, and that's the supraspinatus muscle. This is one of the rotator cuff muscles, along with a few muscles I'm going to mention here as well. Then immediately inferior to the spine, so just named for that relationship, we have the infraspinous fossa. The infraspinatus muscle attaches there, another rotator cuff muscle. Now we could go to the other side and we can find another fossa. Fossa is a kind of a, a smooth area of a bone. Uh, on the other side, the anterior side, now we have the subscapular fossa. Another muscle simply just named for its attachment there is called the subscapularis muscle. So three of the four rotator cuff muscles attached there on these fossas. And so we have, uh, so far mentioned, the supraspinatus, infraspinatus, and subscapularis. We have one other rotator cuff muscle called the teres minor, which I'll mention here in a second. 
So we could talk about some borders as well. The superior border of the, of the scapula provides an attachment site for a muscle called the omohyoid muscle. So this muscle is simply just named for its attachment to the shoulder and the hyoid bone. Omo is a, is a, a shoulder uh, root. Um, superior angle provides an attachment for a muscle called the levator scapulae. And this muscle just tells you it's responsible for elevating the scapulae. Now we have the lateral and the medial borders. These are simply just, they fall right in line, right? The lateral border, you wanna just make sure that you're looking at the same side as the glenoid fossa. The lateral border serves as the attachment site for both teres major and teres minor. So teres minor is the last rotator cuff muscle. And so remember, you could use the mnemonic device SITS to remember these rotator cuff muscles. And so SITS is supraspinatus, infraspinatus, teres minor, and uh, subscapularis. So then if we go to the other side, the medial border, so make sure you're not on the same side as the glenoid fossa now. This is where the rhomboid major and rhomboid minor muscles attach. And so these are responsible for uh, retraction of the scapula, pulling the scapulae toward midline as well. So think of a rowing motion. Go to the gym later, hop on a rowing machine. You're using, among other muscles, the rhomboid muscles. So now let's take a look at a few more structures here, and then we'll move on to the clavicle. So... The inferior angle of the scapula, this is an attachment site for the latissimus dorsi muscle, which is a massive back muscle. It's going to be inferior to the trapezius muscle, which I mentioned here a few minutes ago as attaching to the spine. We have another structure here called the suprascapular notch. So you're going to look for a structure that's just a little bit medial to the coracoid process. And we have a really important nerve called the suprascapular nerve that uh, this, this notch provides a passageway for the suprascapular nerve on, en route to its innervation of uh, rotator cuff muscles. So there you go with the scapula. So what you can do, remember, I would just go forward with a quick assessment of posterior and find the spine, quick assessment of lateral to find the glenoid fossa, and then you can just move right from there. And a lot of these structures really just fall in line for their relationship to medial, lateral, anterior, posterior, and also just uh, make sure you just confirm the borders on the basis of whether you're on the same side as the glenoid fossa for the lateral border or whether you're on the uh, opposite side, which would be the medial border. Okay, now here we go with the clavicle. So commonly known as the collarbone, you can feel that on yourself. So uh, superior to your chest, and it's going to be that horizontally coursing bone. You can confirm that it also attaches to the sternum. So along with the scapula, it's the part of the pectoral girdle that helps anchor the upper limb to uh, the axial skeleton. So whereas for the scapula, we concerned ourselves with medial versus lateral, and also anterior versus posterior primarily. We're also gonna concern ourselves with medial and lateral for the clavicle, but also superior versus inferior. So the clavicle is gonna make a strong connection medially at the sternum, which is the breastbone. So to find the medial sternal end of the clavicle, you're gonna locate the blocky aspect of the clavicle. And to find the lateral acromial end of the clavicle, you're gonna locate the flat aspect of the clavicle and confirm that it has a subtle curve that bends toward anterior. So this isn't perfect, right? But if you compare medial versus lateral, the medial sternal part is going to be blockier in appearance compared with a more flatter, a flatter appearance for the lateral acromial part of the clavicle. And then to find the inferior surface of the clavicle, 
you're going to find the surface with more roughened aspects. And usually roughened aspects indicate some sort of attachment that's occurring there. And so the bone model that you have may not be perfect. But uh, basically, the, the roughened aspects indicate attachments for ligaments that reinforce the shoulder joint. So let's talk about these landmarks, why they're there, where they're located, what's their purpose on the clavicle here. So the roughened portion on the sternal end, you're going to find an attachment site for the costoclavicular ligament. So costo refers to the rib. So this is going to be a ligament which reinforces the attachment or this area between the clavicle and the ribs. Inferior clavicle, you're going to find an attachment for various ligaments. And so I will talk about this in a little bit more detail in an upcoming podcast. But these ligaments are called coracoacromial, acromioclavicular, and coracoclavicular ligaments. So let's take a look at the names of these ligaments. We have the coracoacromial, so named because it attaches, the ligament attaches between the coracoid process and the acromion of the scapula. Then we have acromioclavicular name because it, it it's the two attachment sites are the acromion and the clavicle. And then lastly, the coracoclavicular ligament attaches the coracoid process with the clavicle. And these ligaments collectively provide stability, uh, basically superior to the shoulder joint and uh, stability overall for the pectoral girdle. So we have a, a strong anchoring of the upper limb to the axial skeleton through uh, both the scapula and the clavicle, but stability overall in this area. Now the sternal end of the clavicle, that is the medial aspect of the clavicle, is going to be the articulation point with the sternum, which is the breastbone. And that joint is called the sternoclavicular joint. The acromial end of the clavicle, that is the lateral aspect of the clavicle, is going to be the articulation point for or with the acromion of the scapula. So what else do we have here attaching to the clavicle? Medial clavicle, also the attachment site for the pectoralis major, an adductor and medial rotator of the humerus, the sternocleidomastoid, and also the sternohyoid muscles. Lateral clavicle, we're going to have an attachment site for the deltoid and also the trapezius muscles. I've mentioned trapezius as well, uh, also attaching to the spine of the scapula. And then mid-clavicle, we have an attachment site for the subclavius muscle. This muscle is relatively small, and it's going to depress the clavicle and also elevate the rib. And it's also going to provide some protection for the structures that are deep to this muscle, including, for example, the brachial plexus. But kind of an interesting little muscle here. Now, before we head on to the humerus, just kind of a word to the wise here. So I've, I've thrown around various terms here, uh, like tubercle, spine, fossa, etc. And so I debate, uh, I go back and forth about whether or not we define terms or uh, when we define terms for these different landmarks. So there are definitely some terms we could use for the different landmarks I've described so far. For example, I've talked about a fossa. Uh, a fossa is a, a flattened depression in a bone. Um, and they each fossa looks kind of different. And we've, are, we've already talked about the supraspinous fossa, the infraspinous fossa, the subscapularis fossa, for example. And we'll talk about some uh, different fossa that we find on the humerus as well and other bones too. But then we have a spine. It, this is a process from a bone. And then we have a tubercle. This is a small, round, roughened portion uh, projection from a bone. And then we have another structure called a tuberosity that is a larger, uh, small, rounded, roughened portion from a bone. 
Uh, if we, we can go a little further and we can add, uh, for example, a trochanter into the mix here. And you'll find that on the femur too. Um, so we have technical terms for these different structures. Now, this may or may not help you to know these terms. And I, I find that it's better to just kind of talk about these terms after you sort of have a context for what we're even talking about. So as mentioned, you've already seen the supraspinous fossa and the infraspinous fossa in relationship to the spine. So you know what a spine is and you know what a fossa is. You've also seen the supraglenoid tubercle and the infraglenoid tubercle, uh, just superior and inferior to the glenoid fossa. And then as we head into the humerus, you're going to see some other tubercles and a tuberosity and uh, so on and so forth for all these different structures. So it, it's just important, I think, to just consider the fact that there, there are terms that do describe what these structures look like, but you, you may or may not need these terms. Uh, if you simply know where these structures are located, you know what's attaching to them, then how these terms are defined is, is kind of somewhat less important because you can actually just take a look at the structure and you can see what it looks like and that it's a roughened portion of a bone. And then you can sort of describe it the way you want to in the best way for you to remember what that structure is. All right, so here we go. Let's head on to the humerus now. Humerus is the bone of the arm. So superficial to the humerus, we have muscles like the biceps brachii, the triceps brachii, brachialis, also coracobrachialis. So we are heading distal. So most proximal aspect of the upper limb is the pectoral girdle, which we've already talked about, that scapula and clavicle. Now we're at the humerus. And then distal to the humerus, which we'll get to in, in a few minutes here, that's the forearm. That's the radius and the ulna. So humerus, bone of the arm. So to find proximal and medial, what you want to do is you want to locate the head of the humerus and note that the head is facing medially. So the shoulder joint, again, is a ball and socket joint. The socket is the glenoid fossa, and then the ball for the ball and socket joint is the head of the humerus. This is a structure that's always going to be pointed medially so it can link up with this glenoid fossa. Now to find anterior, you want to locate the lesser tubercle as a rough portion directly facing you. I like to think of this structure as the dead anterior structure and like the eyeball that's looking at you. It's going to be right smack dab in the middle of the humerus and it's an anterior structure. So as soon as you see that, you know right away you're looking at the anterior humerus. It's also a proximal structure. Uh, it's basically just uh, lateral and distal to uh, the head of the humerus. Now with the bone, or while you're looking at the bone, confirm that the large olecranon fossa is on the posterior side of the humerus if the lesser tubercle is facing you. And so this is a good posterior and distal landmark, the olecranon fossa that is. And so why is this here? This actually allows us to fully extend at our elbow. So we have this big bulky aspect of the ulna, which we'll get to here in a few minutes, called the olecranon. If we didn't have a fossa on the posterior side of our humerus, every time we went to extend our elbow, our olecranon would have no place to go, and we wouldn't be able to fully extend our elbow. So this olecranon fossa, posterior distal aspect of the humerus, allows us to fully extend our elbow. It's kind of handy like that. Now, to find distal as well, you're going to locate the smooth surfaces of the trochlea and the capitulum, and these look like small spools. 
Now let's think about this a little further. If the head of the humerus is facing left and the lesser tubercle, which is that dead anterior structure, is facing you, you have left humerus. So give that some thought here. Now if the head of the humerus is facing right and the lesser tubercle is facing you, you have right humerus. So let's kind of put this together here. Head of the humerus, always facing medially. A lecranon uh, fossa is a good posterior distal structure. If you see the lesser tubercle, you know right away you're looking at a dead anterior structure for the humerus. Put this all together, and you can ba basically size up this bone pretty quickly. Now, remember that at the distal part of the humerus, this is where we're making a connection to the radius and the ulna. On the medial aspect of the humerus, this is where we make a connection to the ulna. On the lateral aspect of the humerus, distal part, we're making a connection with the radius. Okay, so we have some other landmarks besides the ones I've already mentioned here already, but we have a deltoid tuberosity. So you're looking a little bit distal to the, the greater and the lesser tubercles, and this is the attachment site for the deltoid muscle. So this is a muscle that basically surrounds your shoulder like a glove, allows you to pull your arm uh, to the side, uh, forward and backward, so abduction and then both flexion and extension of the shoulder. Head of the humerus, remember this is the articulation point with the glenoid fossa of the scapula, and this is a structure that's always going to be facing medially. Now we have two structures known as the anatomic neck and the surgical neck of the humerus. The anatomic neck is actually located just lateral to the head of the humerus. A neck is a narrower portion of a bone. And so we have a narrowing of the humerus just lateral to the head of the humerus. And then we also have the surgical neck of the humerus. This is a narrowing portion of the bone that's actually just distal to the tubercles of, of the humerus. And so we actually have, these are common fracture points, and the surgical neck of the humerus is actually uh, it typically more commonly fractured compared with the anatomic neck. So then just distal and kind of lateral to the anatomic neck, we're going to find our greater tubercle, lesser tubercle, and intertubricular sulcus. So the lesser tubercles, this dead anterior structure, is a good anterior landmark. And then lateral to that, we find a greater tubercle. And then we have this intertubricular sulcus, or IT sulcus, or IT groove, which provides a passageway for the tendon of the biceps brachii. Now, what about these tubercles? We have a lesser and a greater. The greater tubercle is going to provide an attachment site for three of the four rotator cuff muscles. And the three of the four that attach there are the supraspinatus, infraspinatus, and teres minor. The last one, the subscapularis, actually attaches at that dead anterior eyeball structure, the lesser tubercle. You may have caught this, but the IT sulcus, the intertubercular sulcus or groove, is simply just named for the fact that it's between the greater and lesser tubercles. So inter just means be between, and so the biceps brachii passes in this area. This is actually an area where the biceps brachii can be inflamed pretty easily. If you do, for example, push-ups with rotation, you can actually get some uh, biceps tendonitis here in this area. Common place for tendonitis. Uh, just out of curiosity there, if you happen to be an exerciser and uh, may have experienced this before, I certainly have as well. 
Okay, so here we go to the distal part of the humerus. Hope you've enjoyed your stay at the proximal part of the humerus. Let's go to the distal humerus now. So on yourselves, you can actually look down uh, near your elbow, and you can see that the medial aspect or toward midline of your humerus protrudes more compared with the lateral aspect of the humerus, the, the lateral epicondyle. So medial epicondyle, distal part of the humerus, protrudes a little bit more, more prominent compared with the lateral, the distal part the lateral epicondyle there. So uh, the medial epicondyle is actually the attachment site, the common attachment site for the anterior forearm muscles. These muscles are responsible for flexion of both the wrist and the fingers. And then the lateral epicondyle is the common attachment site for the posterior forearm muscles. These muscles are responsible for uh, extension of the wrist and digits. So again, medial protrudes more, lateral a little less. Epicondyles are both the distal aspect of, uh, of the humerus. And then distally as well, that's way far away from the head of the humerus, we find the trochlea, which is the articulation point for the ulna. So this is a structure that's on the distal humerus, but on the medial side. And then we have another structure called the capitulum. This is the articulation point for the radius. And these look like spools. And the spool that's a little bit more prominent looking is the trochlea because we have a strong uh, primary uh, articulation with the ulna at this point. It's a little bit stronger uh, connection compared with that of the, the radius at the capitulum. And then coronoid fossa. This is the articulation point for the coronoid process of the ulna. It allows for flexion of the elbow. So this coronoid fossa is kind of like the corollary for the olecranon fossa, which I mentioned before. The olecranon fossa, this, this relatively large fossa on the uh, posterior side of the, the distal humerus, allows for us to fully extend, whereas the coronoid fossa, distal medial humerus, allows us to flex. Uh, bring our forearm toward the humerus. Last structure that you're, you're going to want to take a look at, last relevant structure, is it, the groove for the radial nerve. This is on the posterior aspect of the humerus, and it's going to be a passageway for the radial nerve making its way to the forearm. The radial nerve actually innervates posterior compartment of both the arm and the forearm. So innervates all the heads of the triceps brachii and then all these extensor muscles that have their common attachment at that uh, uh, lateral epicondyle. Uh, that, that radial nerve is gonna innervate all those muscles there. Now before we head into the forearm, just quick notes here to, to summarize the humerus. Where is the head of the humerus? Find that. You're gonna find that at the proximal aspect of the humerus. That's gonna be always facing medially. Find your lesser and greater tubercles. Your lesser tubercle is going to be that dead anterior structure. It's like an eyeball looking at you. And then lastly, uh, where's that olecranon fossa? Uh, find that. You, you know you're looking at the posterior distal humerus. And then what I'd also do is I'd also confirm where the trochlea is. You're going to find the trochlea as that spool on the distal part of the humerus. And make sure you confirm that it's medial. It's on the same side as the, the uh, head of the humerus. So there you go. So why don't we head now into the uh, forearm where we're going to encounter the radius and the ulna, the two bones of the forearm. Okay, so so far we've talked about pectoral girdle, that scapula and clavicle. We've talked about the bone of the arm, which is humerus. Now we're at the forearm, and the two bones that we'll find there are radius and the ulna. Now right now on yourself, 
you can actually roll your radius around your ulna. So let's start with actually a, a neutral position in which your elbow is fully extended and your thumb is pointed away from your body. And so you can actually then, uh, and your palm is facing forward in that, that case as well. So let's actually have you roll your thumb toward midline now. So you're actually pronating. This is the action called pronation. And you're actually rolling your radius around your ulna. Now then if you take your thumb and point it away from midline again, that action is known as supination. And your radius is actually rolling back to its, uh, its neutral position located lateral to your ulna. So these two bones, uh, the radius is the lateral bone, the ulna is the medial bone, articulate with the distal aspect of the humerus. The radius is going to articulate at the capitulum, and then uh, your ulna is going to articulate at the trochlea. The primary flexor, the bone that does the primary flexion, is the ulna. And it actually uh, has a structure called the trochlear notch that's going to wrap around the trochlea. And then that coronoid process is, when we, when we flex, is going to go right into that coronoid uh, fossa on the distal part, anterior part of the humerus. So the radius is going to do something similar, but maybe less so compared with the ulna. Uh, the, the head of the radius is actually going to, uh, when we flex, is going to move right into the radial fossa. Uh, the radial fossa is there to enable flexion, and this is the distal part of the humerus as well. So if somebody put an ulna and a radius directly in front of you and you just didn't know right away what you're looking at here, what you're going to look for is you're going to look at a bulky, funky-looking structure, which is the proximal aspect of the ulna. This is called the olecranon, whereas the radius actually has a disc-like head. And that head is shaped like that to enable that, that motion you just performed a few minutes ago where you pronate and you supinate. It makes sense that the head of the radius is circular. So to enable this kind of rotation movement where the radius kind of rolls around the ulna. And then uh, look for that bulky, funky-looking head on top or the proximal aspect of the ulna. Then both distally have a styloid process. Both of these bones have a stylite process. This is a, a pen-like projection from the bone. And we'll actually see a stylite process on the skull as well. Um, and I'll talk about that when we talk when we get to the skull bones as, as well and go into greater detail on those. So again, take a look at the pictures and see that the ulna has the big, funny-looking proximal head. And then the radius has a disc-like circular head at its proximal part. Uh, to enable it to roll. And so another structure that you'll find on the radius is the radial tuberosity. This is a structure that's just distal to the neck of the radius. Remember that the neck is the narrower portion of the bone. So we have head, then neck, narrower portion, and then radial tuberosity. This is where the biceps brachii attaches to the radius. Uh, the biceps brachii is a flexor supinator, and so when we contract this muscle, we're going to actually flex and supinate. And so this attachment uh, at the radius at this point uh, basically kind of uh, helps us visualize the action of that muscle. So why don't we do some tips here, and while you look at some pictures, I think these tips will help you uh, think through where these different structures are located on both the radius and the ulna. So to identify the radius, you're going to find the disc-like head. This is the proximal aspect of the radius. 
To identify the ulna, you're going to find the bulky olecranon. This is the proximal aspect of the ulna. So I think so far so good on these. To confirm anterior radius, the radial tuberosity will be facing you. To confirm anterior ulna, the trochlear notch and the coronoid process will be facing you. If the radial tuberosity is facing you and the styloid process is on the right, you have left radius. If the radial tuberosity is facing you and the styloid process is on the left, you have right radius. If the trochlear notch and the coronoid process are facing you, the radial notch is on the right, and the styloid process is on the left, you have left ulna. And if the trochlear notch and the coronoid process are facing you, the radial notch is on the left, and the and, excuse me, and the styloid process is on the right, you have right ulna. So why don't you give these tips some thought? If any of this is unclear to you, let me know. Send me an email. Let me know how I can further clarify this to you or for you. And so you want to use these tips in the context of taking a look at some visuals. And so uh, a lot of these you can, a lot of the things we will talk about, for example, muscles, movement of bones, for example, you can kind of see some of the structures and how they relate to each other, of course. But it, it gets a little tricky when we talk about the the bony landmarks, for example, or some of the other structures like the nerves that you don't see necessarily on a, on a daily basis. Okay, let's summarize why these landmarks are actually present on both the radius and the ulna. So for the radius, remember that the radial tuberosity provides an attachment site for the biceps brachii. We have that styloid process. This is going to provide an attachment for the brachioradialis muscle. The head of the radius, this is the proximal disc-like part of the radius. It allows for us to roll the radius around the ulna, and that action is called pronation. When we take our thumb toward midline, rolling the radius like that, and then we take our thumb away from midline, that's supination. On the ulna, we have a couple structures here, the ulnar tuberosity and the coronoid process. The coronoid process is proximal compared with the ulnar tuberosity. We have a little roughened portion just distal of the coronoid process. These are going to provide an attachment site for the brachialis muscle. The, the brachialis muscle is actually a primary flexor in all positions, whereas the biceps brachii, for example, is going to be a flexor supinator. The olecranon process, this is the attachment site for the uh, triceps brachii muscle. It's also going to be the part that uh, is going to go into the olecranon fossa when we fully extend our elbow. The styloid process of the ulna is going to be the attachment for a ligament which supports the medial aspect of the elbow, and that ligament is called the ulnar collateral ligament. And then the radial notch, this is going to be the point of articulation for the radius, and this uh, radial notch is always going to be found on the lateral part of the ulna. Okay, so here we are at the hand. This is the most distal aspect of the entire upper limb. So here we're talking about distal to the radius and the ulna, and we're talking about carpals. And then distal to that, we have metacarpals. And then distal to that, we have phalanges. And so before we even get to that, we first just need to confirm where uh, lateral is and where medial is. So as soon as you see the thumb, you know right away you're looking at lateral. 
and then you're looking for the pinky for medial and that sort of helps you out a lot because the mnemonic device I give you here in a second this is actually from lateral to medial and proximal to distal so we actually have uh, eight carpal bones and they're they're listed from lateral to medial uh, first row to second row or proximal row to distal row and so if you listen to episode three you already know the, the mnemonic device and hey you can take this mnemonic device however you want but the the mnemonic that's been passed down for generations to come is um, some lovers try positions that they can't handle so that stands for scaphoid lunate triquetrum pisiform and then trapezium trapezoid capitate and hamate so those first four bones there scaphoid lunate triquetrum and pisiform are in the very first row of carpal bones so closer to the radius and the ulna and then the second row trapezium trapezoid capitate and hamate are closer to the metacarpals and so you can confirm as well that the pisiform is actually you can actually feel this on yourself on the uh, medial side of your wrist it sticks out a little bit so does uh, a part a protruding part of the hamate bone called the hamulus or the hook this also protrudes toward the palm so if you have a hand model uh, that you have in class you can confirm that the piece of form in the hamate or the hamulus or the hook of the hamate rather are, are protruding toward the palmar surface of the hand uh, so that's a good way to know uh, anterior versus posterior or, or palmar surface versus dorsal surface and then of course your thumb versus pinky for lateral versus medial now then distal to the carpal bones we have the metacarpals so the very first metacarpal is on the thumb side uh, it's associated with the with the thumb and so we actually have first is the most lateral and then the most medial is fifth and they just go in order usually numbered using roman numerals and then we go distal to those those metacarpals and we're going to find phalanges you actually have 14 phalanges well why oh we have five digits right so why don't we have 15 phalanges now the reason for that is because the the uh, first digit the thumb actually has just proximal and distal phalanges and then digits two through five have proximal middle and distal phalanges so we've used the terms uh, proximal and then distal here but just taking a look at your hand right now go distal to your forearm and you're gonna find the wrist and the wrist is the carpal bones and then if you go distal to that you're gonna find the palm of your hand and deep to the skin of the palm of your hand you're gonna find the metacarpals and then go distal to that you're gonna find your fingers deep to the skin of your fingers you're gonna find phalanges and so you're gonna have three of those phalanges on digits two through five index through pinky and then deep to the skin of your thumb you're gonna find only proximal and distal phalanges for that first digit for the thumb now just like I did for the bones the other bones of the upper limb I've talked about already we, we can talk about some of the muscles that are, are attaching here and so we're not gonna get as into the nitty-gritty as we did for uh, some of the other bones but we have muscles that go and attach to the carpal bones on both the anterior side and the posterior side and so on the anterior side these muscles are called flexor carpi so we have flexor carpi radialis for example and then on the posterior side we have extensor carpi radialis 
And when I talk about the muscles of the forearm, I'll, I'll get into more detail on these muscles. But then we have extrinsic and intrinsic can muscles. So the extrinsic can muscles include muscles like flexor digitorum. It's going to go to the digits on the anterior side and pull our fingers so we can flex them, so we can bend them. Whereas then we have extensor digitorum, which is going to straighten our fingers. So that, that muscle is going to be in the posterior compartment of the forearm. So anterior flexor digitorum, anterior compartment of the forearm, and then posterior compartment of the forearm, we're going to find the extensor digitorum. Then we have intrinsic can muscles. So basically we're going into the depths of the hand. So we have these muscles called interosseous muscles that are actually located between the metacarpals. And these muscles actually pull our uh, metacarpals either closer to one another or away from one another. And right now on yourselves, while you're listening to this podcast, you can actually kind of do that for yourself. You can pull your, your metacarpals apart from one another and then you can put them back together. It's a little tricky to kind of visualize and see. But we have adduction and we have abduction of the metacarpals. And so basically you're going deep into the, uh, you're pulling away the, the, dif the different uh, digitorum muscles and you're diving deep uh, to see the muscles between the metacarpals. I'll talk about this in more detail in a few podcasts from now and, and kind of distinguish between the interossei muscles. And then we have the lumbricals. These are associated with the tendons of the digital flexors. And what they do is they're going to flex the MCP joints and they're, they're going to extend the IP joints. So to flex the MCP joints, MCP joint is the metacarpophalangeal joint. And so right now if you flex that joint, you're going to pull your, all your fingers toward your palm. And you can actually do that right now for yourself. And then they're going to extend that IP joint. So basically they're going to extend the joints between the phalanges. So lumbricals flex the MCP, extend the IP joint. Now then one other component here. We could talk about going a little bit superficial to uh, your thumb and a little bit superficial to your pinky. So on your thumb side you have this thing called the thenar eminence. Whereas on the pinky side you have the hypothenar eminence. Both of these include muscles that allow us to pull the pinky toward the thumb. One example of a muscle that we find here is called the opponens. And that opponens muscle allows us to pull our thumb and our pinky toward one another. And this is an advantage because it allows us to grip things. So we have these tiny muscles inside of these eminences that allow us to have fine motor control. So again, we have thenar eminence on the thumb side and then hypothenar eminence on the pinky side. And so when I talk about the muscles of the forearm, I'll get into more detail about these muscles that are contained within uh, the thenar and the hypothenar eminence. It is time in the podcast for the triple threes. In the triple threes, we have three types of questions. And each type of question, we have three questions. Easy enough. Straightforward, right? So we'll start off with the true-false. I'm going to make a statement, and you tell me if that statement is true or false. Here we go. The infraspinous fossa is found in the back or on the back 
That is the posterior part of the scapula. So that is absolutely true, right? This is, you're going to find the spine of the scapula, right? That's a, a perfect posterior landmark. And then the infraspinous fossa is located inferior to the spine of the scapula. Next, next one here. The proximal prominent part of the ulna is known as the coronoid process. That is actually false. The proximal prominent part of the ulna is known as the olecranon process. That's the bulky, funny-looking part of the proximal ulna. You can, uh, if you flex your elbow right now, you can. You're basically you're pointing your olecranon process at somebody. The coronoid process is basically just distal to the trochlear notch. It's a, a process where the brachialis muscle actually attaches. Next one. Capitate is the proximal row, is in the proximal row of the carpal bones. That's actually false, right? It's actually in the distal row. So that's the, that they can't handle in the mnemonic device. It's, so it's that third one there. Uh, almost to most medial, uh, the last one would be hamate. Okay, next set of questions, one word association. I'll name the landmark and you tell me the bone it's associated with. The landmark is trochlea. So that is actually associated with the humerus, the distal humerus. And then the trochlear notch of the ulna actually articulates around the trochlea of the humerus. Next landmark, styloid process. Aha, kind of tricky, right? You could say the radius and the ulna for styloid process. And if you're Kind of thinking ahead, you could also say even skull is located uh, on the, you can see it best uh, from the inferior view, but you can also see it from the lateral view as well. Glenoid fossa. That is the scapula, right? This is a perfect lateral landmark. This is the socket for the ball and socket shoulder joint. It's where the head of the humerus articulates with the scapula. Okay, last group. Kind of an open-ended question here. What is the significance of, and then I'll list the landmark. So the lesser tubercle. So the lesser tubercle is a perfect dead anterior structure, dead center structure for the proximal humerus. And then one of the rotator cuff muscles actually attaches here, and that is the subscapularis. What is the significance of the coronoid fossa? So we're talking about the distal humerus, and we're talking about the medial aspect of the distal humerus. The coronoid process is allowed to kind of move into this area. It provides a way for us to flex without running out of room, basically. And so uh, remember the brachialis also attaches to uh, the coronoid fossa and also the ulnar tuberosity just distal to that, too. Significance of, then, last part here, our last one, head of the radius. So this is the proximal aspect of the radius. It articulates with the radial notch of the ulna. It allows for pronation and supination. So we can actually roll the head of the radius around the ulna. And so if you pronate, you're, you're putting your thumb toward midline, you're facing your palm backward or down if you're 
if your hand's in front of you right now. And then you can roll your, your radius around the ulna again so your thumb is facing away and that, uh, away from midline. That would be supination. Now, as we leave the triple threes, this is your challenge question for the week. I will uh, tackle this question in the early part of the podcast, the next podcast that we'll talk about. And so it's it's forcing you or asking you, not forcing you, to to extend your thought process about the content that we've talked about today. And so here is the question. There are two muscles that attach to the arm, that is the humerus, that are involved in abduction. One initiates the action, the other takes over after the action is initiated. What are these muscles? And so I'll give you that to chew on until the next podcast. So in the, in the previous podcast, I, I talked about the whole idea of mastering the mindset. And so this, of course, comes into play when you're taking anatomy and when you're trying to get into a future program or just trying to move into a career of your dreams. But anatomy is part of that, right? And so it comes down to belief sometimes. And I'm right there with you. I'm trying to tackle different goals myself. And so I want to leave you with a quote that you can apply to learning anatomy, but you can also apply to anything as well, anything you're just trying to think about. And so here is the quote. Great things are done by a series of small things brought together. And that is actually attributed to Vincent Van Gogh. So I'll let you chew on that and let you apply that to your life however you want. But I'm certainly going to use that quote and and uh, remember that it's just, uh, hey, sticking with it day in and day out. Thanks for joining me in today's episode, the different relevant important structures for the upper limb skeleton. The next episode will drop 5 a.m. two weeks from today. And by the time it, it drops as well, you can go over to my website and find uh, the show notes. You can find those as well for episode 17 and episode 18, uh, designed to give you timestamps and some relevant information for each section of the podcast. While you're on my website, definitely don't forget to grab my free ebook, Preparing to Ace Anatomy. And I'll send that to you. It's free. And then I'll also, I'll continue to send you things that uh, supplement the podcast and help your learning as much as possible. Anytime you receive anything from me, you can hit me back and, and just say uh, what else you might need. Also, the featured resource for today's episode was uh, Preparing to Ace Anatomy Terms. It's an audiobook, less than an hour, designed to help you get started with these terms be a great resource if you're just starting out learning anatomy and kind of overwhelmed with all these crazy terms that uh, it can feel like a lot. There's hundreds of terms, right? But until the next episode drops, all the very best, good luck with your studying, and I will see you later. 